we're now on section two, what causes anxiety. There are four models of what causes anxiety. Some of these can have some overlap, some of these can seem completely different and unrelated to one another. Keep in mind as we go through these, all of these can be valid models to explain what's going on and why you're having anxiety. Listen through each one of these and see which one seems to fit your anxiety the best. The four models of anxiety are the biological model, the cognitive model, the behavioral and avoidance model, and the stuffing emotions model. The first model we'll cover is the biological model. It's also known as the fight, flight, or freeze model of anxiety. In order to understand the biological model, you have to remember that emotions are an evolutionary process to keep us alive and to be able to adapt to difficult situations. Emotions are designed to motivate adaptive behavior and to do that as quickly and effectively as possible. As mentioned previously, nature favors anxious genes. In other words, those with at least a little anxiety are more likely to be cautious and more likely to survive to pass their genes along into the next generations. In anxious reactions, there are physiological components that are designed to be a benefit to us that are experienced as the symptoms of anxiety. They serve a physiological purpose, but may be experienced as unpleasant symptoms or consequences of anxiety. There's a tiny little organ inside your brain. Actually, there's a small part of it in each hemisphere of the brain called the amygdala. The amygdala is not a thinking part of the brain. It's a reactionary part of the brain. It's an alarm. It doesn't understand what's going on. It doesn't have to understand what's going on to function. That would just slow down the process. Its purpose is, among other things, to detect threats and to prepare your body to deal with those threats as rapidly and effectively as possible. The human body relies on a number of physiological processes in the autonomic nervous system, including the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems to respond adaptively to various situations, including perceived threats or dangers, in other words, anxiety. The sympathetic nervous system is the fight-flight-free system that releases energy and gets the body ready for action, while the parasympathetic nervous system returns the body to a normal state of functioning. When the sympathetic nervous system is activated by the perception of threat or danger by the amygdala, which is the emergency response system in the limbic system of the brain that we've already talked about, it's an all-or-none response. That is, when it's activated, all of its parts respond. Either all symptoms are experienced usually, or no symptoms are experienced in most cases. These reactions are mostly involuntary and include making changes to various systems throughout the body to prepare you to deal with stressful, dangerous situations and improve your chances of survival. These physiological reactions can include glandular squirting, internal organ systems, muscular systems, and sensory systems, and also have an effect on our emotions, thinking, and behavior. These changes help us survive by improving our ability to aggressively defend ourselves or to fight, or to run away, or flight, or to remain motionless to evade detection, or freeze. When we perceive threat or danger, our nervous system prepares us physiologically to deal with the situation. 
In the fight or flight part of the equation, the reactions can include adrenaline being released into our system. That contributes to our heart rate increasing to supply more blood to appropriate organs. Our respiratory rate increases to increase oxygenation of the blood. Sugars are dumped into the bloodstream to fuel our actions. Our pupils dilate to allow more light to enter our eyes. Hearing and other sensory organs are heightened. Piloerection, it's not what you think, it's actually goosebumps, occur to increase tactile sensitivity. Muscles increase their twitch rate to respond more quickly. The digestive system is taken offline. And we have increased sweating to keep ourselves from overheating. Now, as I read through that list, you might recognize some of those things as some common symptoms of anxiety. Keep in mind, all these symptoms are harmless. I'll say that again. All these symptoms are harmless. Because of these reactions, you may experience many physiological symptoms, including trembling, rapid or pounding heartbeat, restlessness or jumpiness, startle reactions, sensitivity to light or loud noises, tense muscles and twitchy responses, dizzy or lightheaded feelings to increased levels of blood oxygenation, feeling tired or exhausted after an anxiety episode, and constipation or diarrhea. The symptoms of anxiety result when we have adrenaline and other components released into our system to better prepare us to run away from something or to fight something that's life-threatening. The only thing is, we typically don't literally run away. We typically don't literally fight when we're anxious. So our brain dumps all these um, compounds into our body, and because we're not running, because we're not fighting, we experience the physiological sensations that go along with anxiety. Those symptoms are harmless. They don't hurt you. They don't harm you. They're not going to kill you. They're not dangerous, but they are unpleasant. The freeze part of the fight, flight, or freeze may include physical, physiological reactions that may include restriction of the diaphragm to prevent chest movement, short, choppy breathing, and restrictive of movement or feeling paralyzed. These reactions may contribute to symptoms of shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, feeling paralyzed or frozen by fear. Keep in mind, with, with all these physiological symptoms, exercise is an effective way to deal with those situations when you're anxious, as you're better able to metabolize those chemicals that are released into your system as part of the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. As a disclaimer, always consult your physician before undertaking any new exercise programs. The bottom line for the physiological symptoms and the fight, flight, or freeze is that if you actually had reason to run, if you actually had reason to fight, your body would be able to metabolize all those chemicals released into your symptom, the system, and you wouldn't feel the unpleasant effects of the anxiety because you were actually using those chemicals in your system the way that they were intended to be released. Most people, when they get anxious, tend to be very passive and not do anything, so the chemicals are floating throughout your body for an extended period of time, causing some very unpleasant physiological symptoms of anxiety. Remember, all these symptoms you experience, while unpleasant, are harmless and will cause you no physical or medical harm. They're meant to be adaptive responses to the perception of threat or danger, 
but the part of your brain responsible for these reactions, the amygdala, is unable to differentiate the degree of actual threat or danger. We have the same reaction that we would if we rounded a corner on a trail and ran into a bear that we have if our boss points at us and says, I need to see you in my office. The same chemicals are released into our system. They're not harmful. They're not dangerous. It's all part of the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism. Our next model for anxiety is the cognitive model of anxiety. Many people with anxiety have biases in their thinking, distortions in their thinking, that contribute to and maintain their level of anxiety. People with anxiety worry about a lot of different things. Some people with anxiety report that they worry about everything. Research indicates that their worries are similar in content to the types of worries that people without anxiety have. However, people with anxiety tend to report worrying more frequently about more topics for longer periods of time and find it more difficult to control their worries compared to people without severe anxiety disorders. When anxious, or to become anxious, people tend to make three main errors in their thinking. The first is they tend to overestimate the chance of disaster. That is, they catastrophize. They expect the worst outcome in situations. They can imagine horrible, horrible consequences, and they scare the bejeebers out of themselves with these unrealistic expectations. The second thinking error with people who are anxious is they tend to underestimate their ability to cope with the situation and find workable solutions. And finally, they tend to underestimate rescue factors in the environment and with others. Keep those three main thinking errors in mind as we go through the rest of this in the cognitive model. There are distinct thought processes that contribute to and maintain anxiety. People with anxiety pay more attention to signs of potential threat than do others. They are hypervigilant. For example, people with social anxiety notice unhappy or critical facial expressions on other people more than they notice neutral facial expressions, and may interpret neutral facial expressions as negative facial expressions. By noticing these critical expressions, they may overestimate the degree of threat, that is, rejection by another person, making it seem as though there's much more to worry about than there really is. People with anxiety also have a tendency to interpret vague or ambiguous situations as dangerous, even when there's not enough information to support that conclusion. In other words, if the phone rang at 3 in the morning, they're much more likely to assume that something bad had happened, somebody died, rather than a wrong number, compared to people without anxiety disorders. People with anxiety also expect negative outcomes in situations compared to others. For example, people with anxiety will estimate the likelihood of a car accident involving their loved ones as much more likely than people without anxiety. All of these thought processes and biases and thinking contribute to the worry and rumination and anxiety disorders, just as they do in many other situations, including depression and other mood disorders. Worry is reinforced because sometimes people believe that worry is helpful to them. Some people believe that worry helps them prepare for things, like worrying about a test that will make them more likely to study or to prevent bad things from happening. If they worry about their medical conditions, it's less likely to get worse. That is, if they worry about it, 
and the feared catastrophe does not occur, they may conclude that the worry prevented the catastrophe instead of their fears being unrealistic to begin with. However, worry does not prevent bad things from happening or increase preparedness. Quite the opposite. Worry may impair a person's ability to problem-solve and take adaptive action that may help the situation in real life. Another factor associated with worry is the intolerance of uncertainty. People with chronic anxiety have difficulty tolerating not knowing what will happen in the future. As a consequence, they may worry in an attempt to predict the future and gain some control, which, of course, does nothing to improve or gain control over the actual outcome. Intolerance of uncertainty is a significant component of generalized anxiety disorder. Finally, some people with chronic anxiety will worry not only about things in their life, but also about the worry itself. For example, some people fear that they're going crazy or will lose control when they're worrying excessively about things. As a result of these concerns, people may try to control or suppress their worry. However, trying to suppress or push away worry may actually make the worry more likely to return. Next is the behavioral avoidance model of anxiety. Avoidance is an integral part of anxiety. When we're uncomfortable in a situation, our natural inclination is to avoid it, to escape from it, to run away from it, to not have to deal with it. Most of the time, this is an adaptive response. As mentioned, when we're on the roof putting up Christmas lights and we get anxious near the edge of the roof, we back away. We avoid. It's a response that's designed to keep us safe. Remember, the word emotion has its roots in Latin that means to move away. That's what our emotions do, is to change behavior quickly. When we avoid something that we're extremely uncomfortable with, it can be a huge sense of relief. That relief can be very reinforcing. So reinforcing that avoidance may become our primary coping response, a learned behavior. Unfortunately, the more we avoid, the more anxious we get about the trigger. Avoidance makes anxiety worse. The more we avoid, the more anxious we become. The more we avoid, the more we train our amygdala to treat the uncomfortable, harmless situation as something that's dangerous and needs to trigger an anxiety response. This turns into a self-perpetuating cycle of anxiety, hyperarousal, and avoidance. A safety behavior is a form of avoidance. Those with panic disorder and other anxiety disorders develop safety behaviors aimed at preventing catastrophe. An example would be the ritual of not stepping on a crack to prevent breaking your mother's back, literally. You've been careful not to step on cracks, and so far your mother's back has never been broken. Or if I try not to think about it, it won't happen. Safety behaviors are negatively enforced, reinforced because they seem to provide us with a measure of safety and seem to prevent catastrophic consequences. These behaviors actually prevent disconfirmation of your belief in your own ability to tolerate or manage yourself in the feared situations. We attribute the rescue or our survival to avoidance of the feared consequences to a ritual behavior rather than our own ability to deal with problems and develop improved coping skills. We can restrict activities and engage in many rituals, cognitive or behavioral, to prevent feared consequences and rely on the ritual instead of using more adaptive ways of coping that could be more helpful in the long run. Superstitions often have safety behaviors that accompany them. People sometimes develop some very strange safety behaviors. 
It's important to keep in mind that exposure is a necessary component to the treatment of all anxiety disorders. To get better, we need to stop avoiding the things that we're anxious with and confront them and stay with them to keep ourselves exposed to them until the anxiety ultimately goes away. Last is the stuffed emotions model of anxiety. Many people try to avoid certain or all emotional experiencing by stuffing their emotions. The emotional experience and display of emotions is stuffed or squelched. Anger in particular is a difficult emotion for many people to experience. Many have been taught that angry feelings are wrong, or that they shouldn't be angry with parents or family or whoever. For some people, a spray of anger has some very bad consequences and was avoided at all costs when they were growing up. The problem with stuffing our emotions and using the strategy is that we don't have an emotional bladder to contain all of our stuffed emotions. Eventually, they find a way of escaping, and that way is frequently through anxiety. Anxiety is a safer emotion to feel than anger, for instance. If you're anxious, you might ask yourself, is there anyone with whom I'm angry but I'm avoiding dealing with? Am I avoiding feeling angry for any reason? Is there something emotionally upsetting that I'm not dealing with? Am I running away from my feelings instead of addressing them? If so, it may be time to use the interpersonal effectiveness skills in DBT and start addressing those situations. This section of the recording is on using cognitive and behavioral therapy to address anxiety. First, we're going to cover some general points of intervention with anxiety. The first is with physical symptoms. Our first intervention is relaxation training. You may have heard that relaxation is a tool to always use with anxiety, when in fact it's not. It may actually interfere with treatment because it can be used as a means of avoidance and to prevent experiencing symptoms of anxiety that are necessary to build a tolerance of the anxiety symptoms. Relaxation should only be used to deal with low to medium levels of anxiety. When used during periods of high anxiety, it can actually push some people over the edge into a full-blown panic attack. Muscle relaxation can be used in treating tension headaches caused by anxiety. Another method for dealing with the physical symptoms of anxiety is controlled breathing. Controlled breathing balances the oxygen and carbon dioxide in your system that can be upset when you interrupt your normal breathing pattern when anxious. One method is known as 4 by 4 breathing because you breathe in for a count of 4 seconds, you hold your breath for 4 seconds, you breathe out fully, and you do this for at least 4 minutes. Because there's a time distortion in anxiety, you'll need to use a watch with a second hand to precisely measure the time. The reason we're going to be doing this for four minutes is that's the average amount of time it takes most people to metabolize adrenaline when it's released into their system. Controlled breathing is another form of dealing with physical symptoms of anxiety that's only going to be used at lower levels of anxiety. Some people can push themselves into a full-blown panic attack when they try to use controlled breathing at higher levels of anxiety. And finally, exercise is probably the best method to deal with some of the physiological symptoms of anxiety. I'm going to put a disclaimer in again. Always check with your PCP 
your primary care physician before starting any new exercise program. Intense physical exercise can be an effective way to decrease the amount of physiological hyperarousal associated with the symptoms of anxiety. Any sort of physical exercise can be helpful, but whatever exercise you do, you need to do it for at least four minutes for it to be effective in decreasing the physiological symptoms. We just covered the reason for that. That's the average amount of time it takes most people to metabolize adrenaline when it's released into their system in anxiety. Long, slow exercise, like a long walk, seems to be effective for depression, while brief, intense periods of exercise seem to be the most effective for anxiety. I'm going to take a page from the dog whisperer that people who tend to be anxious also frequently tend to be fairly passive. A more regular exercise program, getting some sort of daily exercise and doing exercise during episodes of anxiety is one of the more effective ways of dealing with the physiological symptoms of anxiety. Next we're going to be dealing with cognitive and imaginal components of anxiety. It's necessary to identify the idiosyncratic content behind the anxiety. Again, you can take people that have the same kind of anxiety, but they have a different idiosyncratic content to that anxiety. It's going to be necessary to identify that idiosyncratic content to be able to better to address that cognitively and with exposure exercises. If the idiosyncratic content of the anxiety is not known, the treatment will ultimately not be successful because you're not able to adequately address it cognitively or behaviorally through exposure. Identifying the idiosyncratic content is an absolutely vital component to the treatment of anxiety. Some of the ways to help narrow it down and identify it could be using the downward arrow technique to find the core issue. You're asking yourself, what would this mean about you? What would others think? What about that situation, about that anxiety, would be the most upsetting? What's the worst thing that could happen? If it were true, what would it mean? Why would it be so upsetting? You have to go down and go down and go down to find out what the idiosyncratic content is, to find out the specific things that you're afraid of, and once you have that, it makes anxiety much easier to work with. Imagery is a central component to anxiety, and it's so powerful because it ties affect and physiological arousal together very well. About 85% of all the people with anxiety disorders report vivid images that accompany the anxiety. It's necessary to assess and treat images the same way that other thoughts are handled. Imaginal exposure is used in situations where in vivo exposure, doing things in real life, would be impractical or dangerous and allows practice with ongoing exposure. You could use a CBT worksheet to track your thoughts and images and behavior so that you can analyze them for distortions and replace them with more balanced and realistic thoughts. Test your automatic thoughts as outlined in the CBT handout. Review the information in this manual and stay aware of the three thinking errors when anxious, that is, overestimating the chance of disaster, underestimating our ability to cope with something, and underestimating rescue factors. Flashcards with reminders, coping statements, and balanced thoughts may be extremely useful in learning new ways to think. 
Finally, distraction can be an extremely helpful way of managing the cognitive components of anxiety. When you're anxious, you tend to stay focused on what you perceive as dangerous. This only serves to keep you hypervigilant and extremely anxious. Distraction involves focusing your attention, your concentration, and your short-term memory on other things. When you don't focus on the trigger for the anxiety, it goes away. Distraction may include the use of puzzles, mental exercises like counting backwards or saying the alphabet backwards. There are many, many forms of distraction. Whichever form you choose, you must again use it for at least four minutes. If you do it for less than four minutes, it'll not be successful. It's also worth noting that with distraction, you can use that no matter how high the level of anxiety is. With things like controlled breathing and relaxation, you only want to use those things at lower levels of anxiety. For higher levels of anxiety, distraction can be used very effectively at any level without causing worse problems. Behavior is the next way we address components of anxiety. In order to get over your anxiety, it's going to be ultimately necessary to expose yourself to the anxiety-provoking situation. The anxiety will not improve if you don't use exposure exercises. Keep in mind, this is where identifying the idiosyncratic component of the anxiety comes in handy. We can't do proper exposure until we know the specific thing that we need to be exposed to. Ongoing exposure is necessary to reprogram the amygdala to no longer respond to the feared stimulus or situation that triggers the anxious response. In vivo exposure, that is, exposing yourself to things in real life, can be used in a number of ways. For information gathering to test automatic thoughts, to expose yourself in order to generate automatic thoughts, and also to help narrow down the idiosyncratic content to practice distraction, relaxation and breathing, and to generalize new adaptive behaviors and cognitions to the anxiety-provoking situation, and also to increase tolerance to the symptoms of anxiety. Using an activity schedule, using a coping plan worksheet, using CBT worksheets, using exposure hierarchies can all be part of that. Next is biology. For specific use in cognitive and behavioral therapy, the use of medication is sometimes discouraged. It precludes exposure to the symptoms of anxiety. People tend to attribute the success to the anxiety, to the medication, rather to their, instead of... people tend to attribute their success in dealing with anxiety to the medication rather than improved coping skills. Most anti-anxiety medications are designed for short-term use only. Medications don't improve the condition, they only mask the symptoms. And medications also have a poor relapse record. When you stop taking the medication, the anxiety comes back. The disorders that do seem to work well with medications are obsessive-compulsive disorder, and generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. Many people with anxiety also have a comorbid depressive or other mood disorder that may require treatment with medications. For instance, some of the newer generation antidepressants can have a very beneficial effect on anxiety disorders as well. 
Some other ways of dealing with the biological symptoms of anxiety include making sure that you're sleeping well, making sure that you're eating well, taking care of any sort of physical or medical problems, and get regular and ongoing exercise. Our next category is the environment. Environmental toxins are actual abusive or traumatic situations that include actual physical danger, harassment, or abuse. These are not distortions, but reality. Assure safety as much as possible. Educate people regarding what they can do and what resources are available to be able to get away from environmental toxins. It's helpful sometimes to transform part of the anxiety and anger to motivate adaptive changes in the environment. Focus not just on coping, but on changing the environment to reduce environmental toxins when possible. We also work on decreasing feelings of shame, increasing social support, and developing a coping plan for the use of specific coping skills to tolerate what can't be changed. Our final section involves specific disorders and specific interventions for those disorders. Each of the anxiety disorders listed here and in the DSM-4 has specific treatment protocols that target cognitive, cognitive and behavioral symptoms of the anxiety disorder. Keep in mind that all the treatment protocols for anxiety include exposure as the primary intervention. It's the way exposure is used that differentiates the treatment protocols for each anxiety disorder. Exposure is an essential treatment component for anxiety. Anxiety will not improve without exposure. As we review each of the anxiety disorders below, note the thoughts and behaviors that are characteristic for each form of anxiety and the type of exposure used to target the problem thoughts and behaviors at each. Ask yourself, how can I address the automatic thoughts in this anxiety disorder? What's a more realistic way of looking at the thoughts? And how can I use exposure to address the avoidance elements in this anxiety disorder? How do I confront the feared situation? The first disorder we're going to be discussing is called Generalized Anxiety Disorder. It's also known as GAD. Generalized Anxiety Disorder is the most commonly diagnosed anxiety disorder. People with GAD often report they've had the disorder as long as they can remember, frequently since childhood. Those with GAD have anxious apprehension, a future-oriented mood state where one becomes prepared to attempt to cope with the pending negative events. Anxious apprehension leads to high levels of negative affect and chronic hyperarousal, a feeling of uncontrollability and constantly feeling on edge. It also includes an attentional focus to threats, internal or external, that uses hypervigilance to keep the person acutely aware of potential risk factors. The primary risk factors will be the ones related to the idiosyncratic content of the main fear, but many other risk factors can be noted as well. It also involves the intolerance of uncertainty that contributes to chronic worry as a means of predicting the future and pending outcomes, but these predictions invariably involve filling in the blanks with your own worst fears. The anxious apprehension process is present in all anxiety disorders. The content of the anxious apprehension is what differentiates one anxiety disorder from the other. GAD is often known as the what-if disorder. 
people frequently ask what if and then they insert their own fears or catastrophic expectations as part of the anxious apprehension process but it never actually goes beyond this they remain hyper aroused regarding the feared stimuli but have no coping plan to actually deal with the feared situation if it does ever actually occur part of the treatment is to move the person to a then what problem solving mode this is part of a procedure called worry exposure. That is, exposing the person to their worry so that they can habituate to the anxiety-provoking stimulus and cognitively restructure their expectations regarding their own ability to successfully manage the anxiety-provoking stimulus. What is known as the PR plan can be a useful tool in dealing with GAD. Uh, if you have questions about the PR plan, ask your treatment coordinator and we can make sure that you have all the information that you need to use that. Specific phobias are our next disorder. A phobia is an intense, unrealistic, or irrational fear of a specific object or situation that compels the person to avoid it. Most people with phobias are aware that their fears are unrealistic or blown out of proportion. Phobias are very common among the general public. Some clinicians estimate that most children have at least three or four phobias, as do many adults. In the treatment of phobias, people seek help for phobias only when they can no longer avoid them. For instance, if you have a phobic fear of flying, say that three times fast, the phobia isn't a problem until you can no longer avoid flying. It's only when you must fly that it turns into a problem that requires treatment. The standard treatment for phobia uses the following guidelines. First, set goals that are realistic and part of the phobic's goals. It's unrealistic to get rid of all anxiety. Goals need to be specific and concrete. Again, identify the idiosyncratic content of the fear. Two people with the same phobia may have completely different outlooks and specific components of which they're afraid. Two people with a fear of flying may be afraid of different things. One may fear death, while another may fear pain with frightening images of a plane crash and suffering. Without identifying the idiosyncratic content, it's impossible to treat the disorder. Problem solve and identify coping skills for fear. Once you have the content of the fear, make plans to deal with it. Use the PR plan or an exposure plan. Problem solve different options and investigate what it would take to do each one. Imaginal, then in vivo exposure to the fear. That is, first we work with the imagination, and then, whenever possible, we move to a real-life confrontation of the thing that we're afraid of. We develop a hierarchy of fear, from the least to most frightening. Practice dealing with the feared stimulus or situation in your imagination, then move to practice in real-life situations. It's essential that the feared situation be confronted in real life as much as realistically possible. Exposure beyond goal. Continue exposure exercises to generalize adaptive behavior and coping skills. And finally, relapse prevention. Carefully observe for any signs of avoidance. Continue exposure exercises using the exposure plan worksheet, the CBT worksheet, and the coping plan. The same treatment guidelines are used to treat children. Because children are more vulnerable to environmental toxins, Carefully assess for signs of abuse or family conflict. Family therapy may be the treatment of choice under these circumstances. Our next is something called social phobia. 
The defining feature of social phobia is a fear of scrutiny by others and the subsequent negative evaluations, usually based upon some observed poor performance or undesirable behavior, frequently of minor everyday tasks that lead to perceived rejection. The person with social phobia believes that they will act in some unacceptable way and be rejected, humiliated, and lose all sense of self-worth. They wish to present a favorable impression of themselves, but are very insecure about their ability to do so. This may lead to difficulty performing even minor tasks in public. Fear of drinking out of a glass, concern that your hand will shake and spill the drink. Fear of signing a check or credit card slip, concern that the salesperson will notice your hand trembling, etc. Central to social phobia is rejection. Rejection is part of the treatment. Assess what the idiosyncratic content of the rejection is, find out what you're afraid others might think or say, and develop coping strategies and assertive defenses, then expose to the rejection. Rejection is a part of treatment, and without this component, treatment will not be successful. Use the exposure plan to develop and implement exposure exercises, paying particular attention to rejection as an element of the idiosyncratic content. Our next is panic disorder. People often say they've had a panic attack, but the actual diagnostic criteria for a panic disorder is very specific. There's a difference between an anxiety attack and a panic attack. The symptoms are the same. The severity of the symptoms is the same. But what differentiates a panic attack from an anxiety attack is what's called a catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. Altogether, catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. Anybody with an anxiety disorder can have an anxiety attack. For instance, if a person with a snake phobia winds up stepping on a snake, they can have an anxiety attack based on that. Anxiety attacks are caused by external triggers. A panic attack is an internal trigger, and that internal trigger, again, is a catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. That is to say, the person who has a panic attack has that attack because they're experiencing signs of anxiety. They're experiencing symptoms of anxiety. Their heart is beating in their chest. Their chest is tight. They have difficulty breathing. They feel dizzy. And they have a catastrophic misinterpretation of what those symptoms mean. So for the person, for instance, who feels his heart beating in his chest, his chest tightening, feeling dizzy, may conclude that they're having a heart attack. A catastrophic misinterpretation of bodily signals. Keep in mind that all the symptoms for anxiety are harmless. They don't cause any medical problems. People do not die because of anxiety. The symptoms themselves are harmless. But for the person with a panic disorder, they misinterpret the symptoms, the physical symptoms, and they think that there's something immediately life-threatening that's about to happen to them. That's what a panic disorder is. Some of the more common concerns with panic disorder is when people experience shortness of breath, they fear that they're going to stop breathing. When they experience chest pain, they're afraid they're going to have a heart attack. If they have palpitations, they're afraid that they're having a heart attack. If they have some sort of depersonalization, they may fear that they're going crazy. If they experience numbness, tingling, dizziness, they may be afraid they're having a stroke. It's the misinterpretation of those bodily signals to something catastrophic and immediately life-threatening that's the basis for a panic disorder. 
It's not unusual for people with a panic disorder to, again, fear that they're having something catastrophically wrong and they're about to die. So they go to an emergency room. They have a complete workup and nothing is found to be wrong. They then consult a cardiologist who puts them through a series of tests and finds nothing wrong. But the person keeps having these episodes where they're fearful that they're about to die without any sort of medical findings to support that. It's a very frustrating experience for a lot of people. Like any other anxiety disorder, the most effective way to treat panic attacks is to expose the person to situations that invoke panic and find a way for them to prove to themselves that the sensations they are feeling are unpleasant but not dangerous and not a sign of impending death or disaster. Once people are able to test their beliefs this way and draw a conclusion about the meaning of their symptoms that is not catastrophic in the actual situation, they rarely have another panic attack. The physiological sensations may return, but they no longer have the catastrophic conclusions and therefore no longer panic. The short version of the treatment for panic includes identifying symptoms and bodily cues, rooting out catastrophic misinterpretations, developing alternative explanations for the symptoms, preventing safety behaviors that frequently accompany panic disorder, and testing the validity of those alternate explanations of the symptoms through discussion and behavioral experiments. So essentially, if you have somebody with a panic disorder, you expose them to the symptoms that they experience, the physiological symptoms. One of the best ways to do that is, assuming there's a PCP approval and there's no pre-existing heart conditions, is to have the person run in place in the office. Have them keep running in place until they've worked up some physiological symptoms. Their heart is beating, they may feel some tightness in the chest, they may feel a little bit dizzy, and you keep them doing the exercise. What you're doing when you do that is proving to them that the symptoms you're experiencing are not life-threatening. Your lips are not turning blue, you're not laying on the ground clutching your chest. The symptoms are uncomfortable and they're unpleasant, but they're not life-threatening. As soon as the person is able to recognize that the symptoms that they're experiencing are not catastrophic and not an indication that they're about to die, the anxiety and the panic go away. Our next disorder is agoraphobia. Agoraphobia frequently accompanies panic disorder. The term for agoraphobia comes from ancient Greek, and it means literally fear of the marketplace, an accurate description of a disorder that commonly prevents people from going to the grocery store or to Walmart. It usually develops when people have had a panic attack, not an anxiety attack, but a panic attack, in Walmart, the grocery store, or something like that. They avoid, they go back home, the symptoms of the anxiety go away once they get home, but then they become increasingly afraid to get out of the house to do things for fear of having another panic attack because they're so intense, so overwhelming, so unpleasant that they see the house as safety, and if they go anywhere else, they're prone to have another panic attack. So they stop going places. It keeps people from going to the grocery store. It keeps people from doing social activities. It keeps people from working sometimes. It can be extremely crippling disorder. The treatment for agoraphobia is fairly straightforward. You develop a hierarchy of what the person would like to do and then expose them to this from the least frightening to the most frightening elements. Exposure is a necessary treatment component. Treatment usually involves the other person who is inadvertently reinforcing the agoraphobia. Uh, for instance, a spouse or other family member that may be required to participate in treatment as well. 
Use the exposure plan to develop and implement exposure exercises, focusing on getting the other person out of the house and involved in normal daily activities like grocery shopping, driving, recreational activities. Exposure exercises need to be done for at least 90 minutes to be effective. Our next disorder is Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, also known as OCD. Uh, OCD is also known as the Doubting Disease. There are several subtypes of OCD, including contamination, checking, counting, ordering, and hoarding. The doubting component comes in when the OCD sufferer has done a task, like uh, checking to make sure all the locks in the house are locked before bedtime, uh, but wonders if they actually did, the che did check the lock or just thought they did, but may not have, and may have forgotten to check it, and checking they may have accidentally unlocked the door without noticing it, The doubting component comes in when the OCD sufferer has done a task, for instance, checking locks, but wonders if they actually did check the lock, just thought they did but actually didn't, may have forgotten to check it, or in checking may have accidentally unlocked the door without noticing. They're reasonably certain they did check the lock, but now wonder if someone might get in, if someone might get hurt, and it would be all their fault for not checking the lock and become anxious and preoccupied with the lock and they feel compelled to go back and recheck the lock over and over and over again. There are two components to this disorder. The first is obsessions, or intrusive ruminative thoughts that lead to an overwhelming level of anxiety and discomfort, and compulsions, or behaviors and rituals that are designed to reduce anxiety by remedying the situation highlighted by the obsessions. OCD is conceptualized by the attempt to over-control these obsessive thoughts, which leads to a focus on an inability to escape from intrusive thoughts. This focus usually centers on sex, violence and destruction of property, and illness or contamination. These thoughts are thought to be due to a rigidly high religious or moral conviction. Notice that this model involves personal responsibility as a key component to OCD as if by thinking something will make it come true. Part of the treatment is to separate thoughts from feelings. There are five assumptions that are characteristic of OCD. First, thinking of an action is the same as doing the action. Second, failing to prevent the action is the same as causing the harm. There are no extenuating circumstances. If you don't perform the ritual to control or cancel the thought, that means that you deliberately want to cause harm, and you must always control your thoughts to prevent harm. As this model illustrates, catastrophizing and responsibility are necessary components for OCD. Treating OCD requires several components. The first is reducing the perception of danger, which includes much decatastrophizing and normalizing of experiences. People with OCD are convinced that the thoughts that they have are highly abnormal, and because they had the thoughts, they have responsibility for the action, and that they're very likely to do the action. That is, if they have the thought, they think it means they're going to do the action, and they must control the thoughts to prevent them from doing the action. Again, it's important to separate thinking from behavior. Just because someone thinks about something does not mean that they will do it. For instance, I might tell someone, okay, I'm thinking of stabbing my own child. Do you think I will now do that? This ultimately leads to testing out two hypotheses. 
having these thoughts is truly dangerous, or this is just an obsessive thought and it has no relation to the world or to my behavior. Test these hypotheses through guided discovery and examining the evidence. When doing this, it's important to allow the person to draw his or her own conclusions. When using cognitive restructuring, notice appraisals and conclusions that are based upon possibility inference. The obsession is given importance to what could happen, not what will or is likely to happen. The treatment of OCD always requires two steps. First, that the person be exposed to the stimulus and the obsessive component. And next, through response prevention, the person deliberately does not use the maladaptive coping response, the compulsion, in order to reassess the consequence of the obsession. Did the catastrophe actually follow if the compulsion was not performed? What other way can the prevention of catastrophe be explained? If you did not perform the ritual, did catastrophe actually follow? Does having the thought mean catastrophe will follow? Are the thoughts dangerous or just unwelcome? That describes the most basic treatment approach to OCD, which is exposure and response prevention. You expose the person to what it is that they're thinking, and you don't let them perform the compulsion. They have to voluntarily be willing to not perform the compulsion to be able to realize that nothing bad is going to happen if they have those thoughts. Next is another phobia. This one is called blood phobia. Blood phobia is a unique disorder among anxiety and phobias as it's the only anxiety disorder in which people actually faint. Oftentimes people are surprised to hear that this is the only disorder in which people actually faint because they assume that in any sort of anxiety disorder there's the possibility of them fainting, but that's not true. This is the only disorder, anxiety disorder, where people actually do faint. It's important to keep in mind what causes people to faint. The thing that causes people to faint is they have a sudden drop in blood pressure. But when you're anxious, your blood pressure actually goes up. You're not going to faint. You may feel like you're going to faint. You may feel dizzy, but you don't faint with anxiety, except when you have blood phobia. In this case, it's an adaptive response in that the blood that you see may be your own. The decreased blood pressure prevents you from bleeding out. Fainting is a byproduct of that. It's a purely involuntary physiological response. The treatment protocol is to mildly increase blood pressure by doing light exercise before exposure to blood, with blood donation as part of the treatment and relapse prevention plan. Remember, this is the only form of anxiety where people actually do faint. We're now going to look at a summary of the treatment for anxiety. To effectively treat anxiety disorders, you must expose the person to the anxiety-provoking stimulus. Treatment will not be effective without exposure. Use the exposure plan worksheet to help out with this. The exposure must target the idiosyncratic content of the anxiety. A thorough assessment is required to pinpoint this content and for accurate diagnosis. Continued exposure to the phobic stimulus without the use of avoidance or safety behaviors will allow the person to desensitize to that trigger. Exposure to the phobic stimulus will be unpleasant and the participant may consider it a form of aversive therapy, 
We work on collaboration and coping skills prior to the exposure exercises. With phobias and generalized anxiety disorders, we're going to focus on skill development, better coping, and gradual exposure using a hierarchy of feared situations from least to most threatening. With obsessive compulsive disorder and panic disorder, we're going to focus on increasing tolerance to symptoms, developing alternative explanations for the symptoms, and testing the validity of the new alternate explanations. We're always going to work on identifying the idiosyncratic content of the fear. We're going to remember that nature favors anxious genes and that a lot of anxiety is adaptive. Remember that the symptoms of anxiety are completely harmless. They're unpleasant, but they do not lead to heart attacks, strokes, or any other physical illness or medical complications. Also remember it's medically impossible to faint due to anxiety with the exception of blood phobia. If you're anxious, your blood pressure goes up. To faint, you have to have a sudden drop in blood pressure. Obviously, an audio recording is not a substitute for actually working with a trained clinician to deal with some of these anxiety disorders. Talk to your treatment coordinator, and we'll work to come up with a treatment plan that's going to be able to address some of your problems and be able to get things better. If you have specific questions about treating anxiety disorders, feel free to talk to the program coordinator. Breath work. During this exercise, I want you to focus on your breathing. Do not change your breathing, just notice it. Now close your eyes. Place your hand on your chest or stomach if you are a belly breather. Notice how your chest or belly goes up and down with your breath. Do not change your breathing pattern, just observe it. Remember how you would watch a baby sleeping and how fascinated you were just watching the baby? Allow yourself to be that interested in your own breathing. Once again, if outside thoughts come in, acknowledge them and gently set them aside.
All right. I want you to begin to focus your attention back into the room. Begin to gently move your body and slowly open your eyes. When you are fully aware of your environment, then you can move about. Neurolinguistic Programming, or NLP, uses memory and visualization to help you relax. I will guide you through one before you do it on your own. I want you to recall a time or place where you have felt very relaxed, peaceful, and safe. Bring this situation to your mind. For this purpose, let's imagine that you have chosen a day at the beach. I want you now to recall all the things that you could see at this time or place. At the beach, you may see the clear sky, the waves as they come onto the beach, seagulls as they dip and fly in the sky, children down the beach that are playing, white puffy clouds, and the colorful beach towel that you are sitting on. I want you now to recall all of the things that you could hear. At the beach, you might hear the seagulls calling to each other, the waves as they wash up onto the beach, the children laughing, and the gentle breeze that is as it is blowing past your ears. I want you now to recall all of the things that you could feel. At the beach, you might feel the warmth of the, the sun on your skin, the breeze as it gently blows your hair, you feel the warmth of the sand beneath your feet, maybe between your toes. and feel the softness of the towel that you are sitting on. Now recall how relaxed your body felt at this time or place. And see if you can allow your body to feel that relaxed right now. This is an example. Remember to keep the images and the feelings positive. And if outside thoughts come in, just simply acknowledge them and then set them aside. Now I will walk you through and give you pauses where you will be putting your own information in. So recall a time or place where you have felt very relaxed peaceful 
and safe. Recall all the things that you could see at this time or place. Now recall all the things that you could hear at this time or place. Now take a few moments and recall all the things that you could feel. Now recall how relaxed your body felt at this time or place.
and see if you can allow your body to feel that relaxed right now. When you are through, begin to focus your attention back in the room. Feel where you're either lying down or sitting and begin to gently move your body and slowly open your eyes. This is a progressive relaxation. So I want you to make yourself comfortable. Comfortable enough that you can relax, but not so comfortable that you go to sleep. Remember that this is to help you relax. If you do go to sleep, the next time, make yourself a little more uncomfortable so that you will stay awake. Take a moment and close your eyes. Take a big breath and just slowly let it out. Now starting with your feet, I want you to feel the relaxing energy as it moves into your feet, in the toe, into the toes of both of your feet. And it moves through your toes into the balls of your feet on up to your ankles. Just allow your muscles to relax deeply. Very peaceful. And now the relaxing energy continues on up into your calves relaxing the muscles of your calves. And feel it as it moves on up into your knees. Allowing a deep sense of relaxation to all of those muscles. And now it moves on up into your thighs Relaxing the large muscles of your thighs. And now into your hips. Feel the muscles just relax, letting go of any stress, any tension. Completely relaxed.
Now feel the relaxing energy as it moves into the fingers of both of your hands. Moving through all those muscles that are in your hands. It moves up slowly to your wrists. Feel your hands relax. Now into your forearms. And into your upper arms. Feel the muscles relax, letting go of all tension. And feel it finally move up into your shoulders. It's like you can take the weight of your world off for a while, letting it go. And now feel the relaxing energy as it moves slowly up your spine, relaxing all of the muscles of your lower back. We oftentimes carry a lot of tension here, so take a few extra minutes just to allow those muscles to relax. Feel it as it moves on up into the middle part of your back. Relaxing all of the muscles of your back. And now feel it as it moves into your upper back and shoulders. Feel the muscles around your shoulder blades relaxing. Again, if you've been carrying the weight of your world, set it aside. Feel the muscles let go and relax. Let your shoulders drop. Now the relaxing energy moves on up your spine and into the back of your neck, relaxing your neck. It moves on up into your scalp, relaxing your scalp. You ever been to like your hairdresser and they've given you a good shampoo and they massage your head afterwards. Remember how just relaxed your scalp felt. See if you can allow it to feel that way now. Now let it move on over the top of your head and into your forehead. If you tend to be a person who frowns, take time to allow those little muscles that form your frown lines to relax. Give them a break. Let it go. 
Bring it on down now into the muscles of your eyes. Relaxing all the muscles of your eyes. Bring it on down into the muscles of your cheeks and your jaw. Relaxing your jaw and allow a small space between your teeth. Bring it on down the front side of your neck, relaxing the muscles of your throat. Now bring the relaxing energy on down into your chest. Relaxing all of the muscles of your chest. Now bring it on down into the muscles of your abdomen. Relaxing your stomach muscles. This is another area that people tend to hold a lot of tension, so just relax. And bring it on down into your pelvis, allowing the muscles of your pelvis to relax. Take a big deep breath and slowly let it out. Do you have any concerns? Just set them on aside. You can pick them up later. Notice how relaxed you feel at this time. Allow yourself to take this sense of relaxation with you throughout the remainder of your day. When you are ready, again slowly reorient yourself to your room. Move your arms and your legs and open your eyes. Relaxation Techniques This CD has been made to help you with your relaxation homework. We have found that individuals do better initially when they have something to guide them through the process until they are comfortable doing the techniques on their own. There are three different techniques included on this CD. They include breath work, neuro-linguistic programming, and progressive relaxation. Each of the techniques are designed to help you relax and let go of stress. You may want to practice each of the techniques in order to find out what works best for you. Each of them help you focus your attention while relaxing your body. 
In order for the techniques to help you when you are stressed out or anxious, you need to practice them so that your body knows what to do when you, come, when you need them. We recommend that you practice them between two and four times a day. Try to find a time when you will not be interrupted for about 15 to 20 minutes. The object here is to learn to relax without going to sleep. Everyone, when they first start learning how to relax, will notice that thoughts begin to come into their mind. Maybe of the things you are worried about or the things that you have to do that day. When that happens, during your relaxation time, simply acknowledge them and then set them aside. You may need to do this several times and eventually your mind will learn to stay quiet while you relax. Be gentle with your mind and if you cannot quiet down, then stop the exercise and work on it at another time.